Welcome, it's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be back in the air chair talking to you. We got a hell of a show today, breaking down news of the day. My contributor, none other than the incomparable Sharon Reed, host, anchor, and commentator, TYT Sports, extraordinaire contributor as well. And we have a bullpen that is going to shake you to your core, but it is necessary for us to have the conversation. Top story of the day, former President Donald Trump says he will surrender to the Fulton County authorities this Thursday. Also, he has basically threatened to flee to Russia, kinda. Let's put it up full mass. Now, he keeps playing with people. And he's about to see the justice of a place called Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia. Donald Trump decided to post on Truth Social, and I quote, the failed district attorney of Fulton County, Atlanta, Bonnie Willis, insisted on a bond from me. I assume, therefore, that she thought I was a flight risk. I'd fly far away, maybe to Russia, Russia, Russia. Share a gold dome suite with Vladimir. No, sir, that's golden shower that you were looking for there. Never to be seen or heard from again. Would I be able to take my very um, understated airplane with the gold Trump affixed for all to see? Probably not. I'd be much better off flying commercial. I'm sure nobody would recognize me. End quote. Uh, let's put up the fearless black woman who is prosecuting the former president of the United States. That's Fonnie Willis, the elected DA of Fulton County. They elected this district attorney to do a job. Remember, she did not do the indicting. Two grand juries indicted the former president, a special purpose grand jury, Fulton County, very diverse, as well as a normative grand jury. Both came to the same conclusion once they reviewed the same evidence. It is the job of the DA to lead the prosecution after the people have spoken. Let's put up the man who said he will provide mugshots. Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt said a couple of weeks ago, he'll have some mugshots ready for us. He said the inside part out loud. He's going to be fingerprinted according to the Fulton County Sheriff. He will have a mugshot. And those mugshots from the Fulton County Sheriff's Office are made public immediately. Let's get into it. The release conditions outlined in Trump's bond. Remember, he has a bond. This is important because it's different. In his bond order are more extensive than those laid out in the others approved earlier Monday in the case. Unlike some of his co-defendants, the former president is explicitly barred in the order from using social media to target his 18 co-defendants. In the case, as well as any witnesses and the 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Let's put up the DA again. Let me tell you why this part is so important. When a person is arrested and they receive a bond, you can have something called bond conditions. The other prosecutors have not allocated these bond conditions on Donald Trump. 
Donald Trump, even though he has been arrested, charged, indicted by a grand jury and multiple jurisdictions, he has not been prohibited from witness intimidation. He has not been stopped as it relates to his social media bullying. But Fonnie Willis allocated the same level of restriction that would be given to any other defendant who has a history of witness intimidation. This is part of your bond agreement. Now, how does the bond work? The bond works by the judge agreeing to recommendations from the defense and the prosecution. Typically, the prosecution gets the win when it comes to the amount of bond. The $200,000, well, that's not that important in the grand scheme of things. But the fact that Donald Trump is barred from going against his co-conspirators, he is barred from witness intimidation, which is normative in the process, is likely going to cause him to violate the terms of his bond. And when he does so, will Fulton County enforce the bond agreement? The defendant shall perform no act, it says, to intimidate any person known to him or her to be a co-defendant or witness in this case, or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. The order signed by Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee states, the above shall include or are not limited to post on social media or repost of post made by another individual on social media. The order reads, the Fulton County election um, subversion case marks the first time in uh, the first time the release conditions for Trump have included a cash bond and prohibition on intimidation through social media. Is it not sad that this is the first time Donald Trump has been actually barred from doing something that's already illegal? It is against the law to engage in witness intimidation. It is against the law already. They literally have to restate statute for his bond condition. No other prosecution has done so as of yet, proving that even with the charges, he's still operating in a space that you and I could not operate in. But Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia, the home of the King family, well, that's the location holding him accountable to the fullest extent of what they can at this moment. Who doesn't like it? Well, these people, the Freedom Caucus, people like Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert. Now they're threatening to literally shut down the government, stop operations because of the prosecution of one man. So let's get this straight. The House Freedom Caucus issued a series of ultimatums on Monday, outlining the demands it wants met before the right wing group's members will support a measure to raise the US debt ceiling and continue to fund the federal government. Among them, an end to the myriad criminal cases pending against former President Donald Trump and the so called weaponization of the Justice Department against conservatives 
as well as ensured passage of a draconian immigration law and an amorphous demand to end quote woke policies in the US military. In other words, if you would like to engage in anti-racist behavior, if you want to actually hold powerful men accountable as everyone else, we are going to shut down the government. They don't give a damn about you. They don't care about your progress. They don't care about your economy. They don't care about your children. They don't care about your education. They don't care about your skill sets. They really don't even care about Trump. They care about power. Their political ideology is power. This move has nothing to do with conservative values or Christian doctrine. This has to do with power. They want it and they want it to be absolute. I need the good people of Fulton County to do their jobs continually, as well as every single jurisdiction that this man breaks the law in. Sharon, thoughts? Yeah, and what what they're not gonna do is hold power over the Madam DA, Bonnie Willis, or the sheriff, one of the most powerful people in the state, okay? It's not gonna happen, okay? It's gonna deliver a one-two punch, they're happy to end this waltz that they've been doing at the federal level with President Trump. She can be the hat throw from that Montgomery, Alabama doc. He can be Aquaman, but it's gonna get done and he's gonna be treated like everyone else. We can do this the hard way if you want to. I don't think you want to. Yeah, you know, I've known um, DA Willis. I've known Patrick Labatt, the sheriff for many years. Uh, Sheriff Labatt and I, we still do um, a clothing drive together once a year. Brother has a good heart. Uh, Don't try them on your best day, all right? A good judge was fondled, sexually assaulted by a bad sheriff. We covered this from day one. That sheriff in the state of Georgia has now pleaded guilty. He decided to literally walk up to a judge, grab her, by the breast in front of other police officers. Judge Glenda Hatchett, one of the best people you'll ever meet. They were at a conference, her date was a former sheriff. He intervened, had to get physical, grabbed the hand of the sheriff who committed the violation. He was not arrested. We covered this now that sheriff has resigned after pleading guilty. Let's put up the picture full mass, after pleading guilty, the sexual battery regarding a groping incident with former TV judge and Fulton State Court Judge Glenda Hatchett. The Bleckley County Sheriff Chris Cootie has now resigned. The sheriff pled guilty to a misdemeanor sexual battery charge against Hatchett on Monday, August 21st, and then decided to step down. The sheriff confessed. That he did, in fact, grope Judge Hatchett's breast at the Renaissance Atlanta Waverly Hotel and Convention Center Bar. This happened January 2022. We brought it to you immediately. The incident took place during the Georgia Sheriff's Association meeting while Judge Hatchett was being introduced to a group of cops, a group of sheriffs. 
at the bar, at the hotel. She says, and I quote, for this man to come up and violate me the way he did is unspeakable. Hatchett said in court, according to WSB TV in Atlanta. As part of his sentencing, the sheriff will serve 12 months on probation. He also has to complete 40 hours of community service and an alcohol and drug course, plus pay a whopping $500 fine. He is ordered to not have any contact with the judge in the future as well. The sheriff submitted his resignation letter to the Georgia Sheriff's Association and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp after the hearing reports show. Now, who was the date? Who was with her? Sheriff Thomas Brown, the former sheriff of DeKalb County, Georgia, who now is a US Marshal. Let's put it up. All right, Sheriff Thomas Brown, good individual, great public servant, legendary leadership actually. So he was the date that night. The Honorable Thomas E. Brown, who was nominated by President Joe Biden, confirmed by the Senate and appointed on October 17th, 2022 to serve as the United States Marshal for the Northern District of Georgia. He was the date during that time. Former Sheriff of DeKalb County Thomas Brown said he personally witnessed the violation on Cootie's part and intervened. He said he was introducing Hatchet at the conference as a featured guest and turned his head for a second to return to Sheriff Cootie inappropriately touching her. Quote, as I turned to my left to focus back on the two of them, I saw his hand go down her left breast, Brown said. I grabbed his arm. But let me just say that, Thomas, you should have whooped his ass. And I say that in all due respect, dear brother, you are the police too. That conference was so full of law enforcement that everybody, everybody should have had a shocked conscience when they saw this. And everybody should have ran to the defense of this woman after seeing what happened. Even the head of the Georgia Sheriff's Association was there as well. Nothing happened. So much so that the night it took place, I received a phone call from a sheriff who witnessed it in Cobb County and believed that nothing would happen. And so the sheriff wanted someone to know that will hold them accountable. Thankfully, Judge Hatchett decided to move forward with prosecuting the elected sheriff of Bleckley County, Georgia. But I want you to think about something. They're in a room full of police officers, full of cops. If they would have been in a room full of, I don't know, people like just you and I, we would have had a response. We would have done something. I submit to you that the sheriff did this because he was in a room full of cops. Because he understood they would do nothing to him. That is the irony of this entire saga. The sheriff said, Sheriff Brown said, I grabbed his arm. I threw it off of her chest and basically said, what are you effing think you're doing? And that's basically where it ended in quote. He provided that to the local news. According to Brown, the sheriff, Sheriff Cootie seemed intoxicated as he placed his hands on the judge's breast and did so to demonstrate his connection to the uh, 
heart of Georgia. Hatchett spoke out in court about how this ordeal has impacted her life. She said, and I quote, my entire professional career, I have been involved in supporting victims. I have seen in my courtroom so many victims over the years, she said. To be on this side, this is very difficult. It is important for the defendant and everyone present to understand the horrific effect this has had on me. This has cut me to the core. Before I go to the judge who oversaw this case, I want to say this about Judge Hatchett. Judge Hatchett is a friend. She she started an organization here that's near and dear to my heart called CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates. We work with foster children. Of the judge. I'm actually happy that this judge said what he said. You're looking at Judge Bowers. He took time out during this proceeding to thank Judge Hatchett for coming to his courtroom. He then apologized for how long this has taken to prosecute. Not his fault, but he decided to offer an apology all the same. He also apologized for what she had to go through with the sheriff. The judge said to the sheriff, to Cootie, if he violates the order, no contact with Judge Hatchett, he will be locked up. Quote, I will lock you up, not a threat, simply a promise, end quote. All right, now naturally my sentiment is um, the sheriff should be arrested because individuals who hold positions of high public trust should be held to a higher standard of law, not a normative standard of law. But that's my opinion. Sharon, thoughts here. I would have liked to see him locked up in the same jail he once oversaw. That's yeah. what I would have liked. Judge Hatchett's such a wonderful woman, as she said. She is a remarkable woman. And I believe had she not worn a robe and been with a US Marshal ex-sheriff, probably would have been victimized even more by the sheriff who believed he could just do whatever he wanted to her. It is sick, people don't understand what it means when you violate a woman in this way. I'm just so proud that she remained an activist, just like she did when her daughter-in-law, Kira Johnson lost her life in childbirth and Judge Linda Hatchett fought for disparities in medicine to go away. She's an activist, but we need to wrap our arms around her and understand what was done here is sexual assault. That's right, that's right. Um, And Sharon, Thomas Brown introduced her to Sheriff Cootie. When he turns around to look away, that's when the sheriff took advantage of that moment to not only violate Judge Hatchett, but to also violate Sheriff Thomas Brown too, right? Okay, we got more on the other side, indisputable stick and stay. Uh, I am sock. This is funny. Says, I know you don't drink, Dr. Richie, but what are you going to sip when Trump's mugshot comes out? Mm. You know, I got to think about that. I do need to have uh, some kind of special occasion for it. 
No alcohol, but something. Thank you for that. It's a great idea. Mark the moment. All right. Uh, very interesting. G. Martinez Mack says, why in the world are we allowing police officials who are caught doing the indefensible vow or unlawful deeds opportunities to jump ship? That's right. Exactly what happened. Uh, Naomi says, keep your paws on yourself. That's right. And yeah. Ghost Dog TV, personally, I kind of hope he does flee to Russia. Uh, I've been calling it for uh, nine years now. <laughs> All right, got something for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish a Karen would. You want to call the police on them for having a barbecue on a and Sunday? You're going to feel free. Back off. I'm going to tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. I hate war, my Jared. I've been waiting on this. For what? For what? Like, I'm, you're your best bet to just walk away. I'm confused. You, you have no business telling her to shut up. Oh, you did nothing. Come on. I'm waiting on you. Because what you're not about to do is try to get me arrested. So come on, you got to swing. So that way I'll be just the part and I'll whoop your ass. Like literally just walk away. Just walk away. Like, are you kidding me? Like, what the f that was straight self-defense. And the woman literally laid out the blueprint that can get you from point A to point ass whooping. She says, now I'm not going to go to jail. So that means you have to actually come and swing at me first. That's the blueprint. Now after you swing on me, then I'm going to whoop your ass. So she provided the blueprint, said now if you want to get to point B, you have to go this route. He decided, he made a conscious decision to go the route required to protect the woman who engaged in self-defense. According to the poster, this was started by him. We have another, let's just say, version of it. Let's go ahead and show it. Like literally just walk away, just walk away. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, I knew what was going to happen when she had a stance that was similar to Muhammad Ali in his prime. Sir, I could have told you that was not going to work out for you. Let's put up the picture full mask. Um, according to the narrative, uh, he was rude and disrespectful, told her to shut up. Uh, and the rest you see. Now, it was during that moment after he swung first. Uh, the woman had to engage in self-defense. It's unfortunate that this uh, transpired um, on the potato chip aisle, uh, but it is what it is. I don't know what aisle they want. Uh, Sharon, I mean, he had ample opportunity to not engage in the blueprint. He told him what it was. Yeah. <laughs> to let him know, Doc. And you mentioned 
Muhammad Ali, the greatest. I thought it was Layla, the way she knocked him out, <laughs> Debo right. style. I'd have walked right over there. Thank you for the show, Layla. And I go yeah. on and get my chips. That was incredible. Yeah. She told him what it was. She said it. She said, listen, you swing at me first, I'm, I'm gonna have to do something. All right? All yeah, right. Layla. Yeah. Yep. A man fatally shot over allegedly stealing a 25 cent cupcake. And it doesn't end there. Put up the picture full of mass. Last week, 28 year old Isaiah Allen, a father of two in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was fatally shot by a gas station security guard over the alleged petty theft of a 25 cent. Snack cake. Xavier Easter Bryant, a cousin of Allen, said on the day of the shooting, Allen was planning to leave for Tennessee and check into a drug rehabilitation center. Allen suffered from mental health issues, but Bryant did not detail them. Prosecutors have charged 56 year old William Pinkin, a felon who actually served time for a night. 1989 slaying with first degree intentional homicide. The case has drawn scrutiny to the gas station who employed him and the state's laws on private security. Now let's put up the gas station. The owner of the Tiatonia gas station is a gas and food station. Garinder Nagra said what happened was, quote, was just insane and that the security guard had been working for him for a little more than a month. Quote, I didn't know he was carrying a gun. He was not supposed to do that, end quote. Let's keep up the gas station, the convenience store. Routinely in particular communities, those who own establishments will decide to save a few pennies by not doing the simple, making sure that the person who's doing security has not killed somebody before. Uh, doesn't take much, uh, a little bit of care about the customers that consume your products inside of your facility. Just a little bit of care, a life would likely not be dead right now, all right? Uh, there was no permit, uh, the man did not have a security guard permit, which is required according to Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services, he is in fact, a convicted felon, which also bars him from possessing a firearm. These are things the owner should have known based on hiring someone to provide security. So what happened at the gas station? Police recovered surveillance footage, which showed the entirety of the incident. According to the criminal complaint, Allen entered the store shortly before 6.20 AM, Wednesday, August 16th, while Pinkins was seated the back of the business. Video shows Allen grabbed a box of Little Debbie snack cakes and left with it. Pinkins rose from his chair and approached Allen while producing a handgun. Within about arm's distance, Pinkins shot Allen in the back of the head. While waiting for police to respond, the guard calmly smoked a cigarette. He told officers he works at the store 
but didn't see the shooting. He then left the scene. Pinkham was later identified and arrested two days later, Friday, August 18th. Now, it is interesting that Mr. Pinkins thought he would get away with it by talking to the police. He must have assumed because he wears a security uniform that he is the police. So he should be able to get away with murder. It doesn't work that way for you, sir. There's more. Who is William Pinkin? Also of Milwaukee. Was a security guard employed at the gas station. Pinkin was convicted of a first degree reckless homicide and robbery in Milwaukee County in 1989. A very simple background check would have exposed this. He would not have been hired, hopefully. And this man who is dead would be alive. This is severe consequence. He shot the clerk of a smoke shop in the head with the sawed off shotgun during a robbery in May of that year. One of his accomplices told police that Pinkin laughed about the shooting afterward. The man is probably a psychopathic killer. There may be other bodies connected to him, possibly should be investigated. There's more. He was released on state supervision in March of this year. According to Wisconsin Department of Correction, Pinkin began working at the gas station in late spring of early summer. That's according to Mona Shea Howard who lives near the gas station and has been active in demonstrations after Allen's death. Howard, who ran a food stand outside the gas station, said Pinkin, the security guard, was, quote, very erratic, but not known to carry a gun. Let's talk about the status um, as a security guard. So Wisconsin doesn't require security guards who are directly employed by a business to obtain a permit. That's according to the Department of Safety and Professional Services. Anyone who wants to work as a security guard for a private security agency must obtain a permit. However, they are not eligible for those who have been arrested under suspicion of a misdemeanor or convicted of a felony that would have disqualified anybody. The community has been up in arms, with some calling for the gas station to be shut down completely. Allen's family, as well as other community members, have gone as far as blocking off pumps. A form of protest, feeling more outraged at the fact that the gas station decided to resume regular business hours right after the shooting. The business now, however, is closed. Protesters have adorned the building with signs saying revoke their license now and closed for justice. Why does the community have to engage in such activity to get the store closed? Right now, the government, the county government has not closed the store. Let me tell you why they should. This is a direct cause and effect of what the owner did by hiring someone who never should have been in position of providing personal or professional security. That person being armed on the premises, creating premises liability. Likely, if he's not a real security officer, there is no insurance dynamic connected to this. The family gets nothing. The list goes on and on. It's irresponsible from top to bottom. Naturally, the county should get involved quickly and do what the citizens have been demanding. Sharon, thoughts on this? County would get involved if you or I served alcohol at our establishment to children, even if no one died. They'd shut you down immediately and post that thing on the door that they do. 
I believe that this should also be squarely at the feet of this owner. And sure, he should have done a background check, Dr. Ritchie, but I don't even think he needed to. I think everybody knew who Pinkins was or what he did in the neighborhood. They had an idea and that's exactly why he hired him. He doesn't have a W-2, I'm sure, but that's exactly why he was there. That part, Mm. that part Um, in the owner's mind, he probably wanted to hire a criminal because he believes everyone around him is one. We're gonna continue to follow this story, give you updates as they come. All right, this is an indisputable exclusive. Nobody else has this story, it's an update. There's a whistleblower who has been giving us information in reference to conditions inside of a prison. Well, he's been retaliated against. Let me remind you of the video, here it is. got a skin problem and it's causing great irritation and you saying you ain't getting treated for it. Can I see your legs? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. And this stuff is so miserable. I mean, yes, it's a bad, bad skin. It itches. It itches. Can I see your other leg? I can tell. Man. And they are not really just giving you no treatment. This can be treatable. Yeah. That's just a small percentage of what this leader has been able to document. These are human beings. Put this picture. Previously, previously we reported on this story of Mr. Bernard Jemison. He's incarcerated at the Ventress Alabama prison. He exposed the medical neglect and abuse of others around him. And he decided to do the unthinkable. Inside of the beast of the belly, to put himself in danger of retaliation to tell the stories of these men. According to his advocate, Jeanette Jones, Mr. Jemison was apprehended on August 1st and taken to Kilby Correctional Facility in Alabama, has now been placed into solitary confinement. They plan on keeping him 
in confinement until they transfer him to a maximum security prison as a level five inmate, despite him never having violent write-ups ever. Central Review Board ruled that he did not need to be in solitary confinement. The board ruled this, but the warden put him up. The warden of the facility decided to override the board. The warden is John Crow. The reason he decided to do this action is on paper unclear, but very clear to those of us who have common sense. Mr. Jemison is now unable to speak to anyone but his attorney. In protest of this extreme action, Mr. Jemison began a hunger strike on August 7th in protest of the treatment, but we have yet to hear if force feeding has begun at the facility, but the strike gained the attention of two investigators from the Lieutenant Governor's office who met with him on the 4th. His outside advocate, Jeanette Jones told us she hasn't heard from him or his family in nearly two weeks. Quote, our criminal justice systems are broken and biased. They have been since the beginning. It's 2023 and there's still horrible there is still horrible mistreatment and unfair and accurate blanket opinions of the incarcerated. It's time for public awareness and major change, end quote. Also, she says, we need to break down and eradicate the corrupt, unjust laws and practices and build a new with foundation, a foundation based off truth, real justice, not just convictions. Rating departments of racism, intolerance, inequity, inequality, stereotypes. <clears throat> Almost 100% of people who are incarcerated, they come home. They are not separate from us, they are us. They are not there and we're here, we're all in the same place. Anytime you can treat a human being differently because of their perceived status in the societal construct, wherever they are temporarily, it's because you do not value their souls, their humanity, their families, their community, their values, their children, their parents. It's not just a de-evaluation of the person in front of them. So here's what I understand. If they would devalue them, they would devalue me. And that's how you have to look at it too. If they would devalue them, they will find ways to devalue you. We will stay on top of this, sharing thoughts. And they're already devaluing all of us, including the inmates there. And by the way, where the whistleblowers being held, Kilby, it's one of Alabama's worst, built yeah. in the 1920s. They had an electric chair called Big Yellow Mama because it's mm -hmm. sport. The conditions you showed us in this exclusive indisputable video, Doc, if that was on foreign soil, we'd be demanding that the mm -hmm. UN, the Red Cross get in there. It's a crime, it's a crime. Yeah, and, and look at that, you made a really great point. 
The UN is in America. The UN is in New York, right in New York. So they would talk and wax poetic about injustices all over the planet. But right here, where the headquarters is located, this country, they're silent for the most part. Got more on the other side, it's indisputable, stick and stay. What if I told you a 10 year old child gets arrested for urinating? Put up the picture. Now, this is insane. A mother obviously is furious after her 10 year old, 10 year old child was detained, arrested, put in a police car, and jailed in her presence. For urinating behind her car. What should have originally been a stern warning was dramatically escalated by the Mississippi police. The child, Quintavious, cried in the back of the police car and was later taken to the jail. I kid you not. Before taking the child away, the officer brought him to his mom who was visiting her lawyer's office, she says she was only away from her son for approximately 10 minutes. The officer explained to her what happened and at first seemed to just wanna give a warning to the kid. Quote, I was like, son, why did you do that? He said, mom, my sister said they don't have a bathroom there. I was like, you know better, you should have come and asked me. If they had a restroom, he, the officer, was like, since you handled it like a mom, he can get back in the car, said Eason, according to Fox 13. But when more officers came, he changed his mind. He decided to charge the 10 year old with a crime. While his mom was filling out his release papers, Quintavious had to be away from her. The mother said a ranking officer insisted that the child must be incarcerated now for his actions. Because of this incident, like many parents of black children, she now fears the officer's unreasonable acts may result in a bad relationship with the police and her son in the future, put up the picture. You see, this is how the us and them philosophy, belief system, the values expression starts. A child gets arrested, charged, jailed in front of his mother, doing something that adults do sometimes when they gotta go. He's a child. He cannot form man's rail. So let me break this down. The reason why this arrest is so unlawful is because no one would presume that a 10 year old can form man's rail, which means the mental capacity to know what you're doing is a crime and to engage in criminal conduct anyway. It is a prerequisite in virtually every jurisdiction with most laws.
I'm just speechless right now. Why would you arrest a 10 year old kid? She asked. Child said he was taken to a cell and referred to youth court on a child in need of service count. The mother said this is the type of incident that could traumatize a child. Quote, my baby could get to the point where he won't want to encounter, have to encounter the police, period. Ms. Eason said, I started crying a bit. They took me down there and got me out of the truck. I didn't know what was happening, Quintavious recalled. I get scared, I start shaking and thinking, I am going to jail. He's 10 years old. That should never be the thought process of a child. He's shaking because he's traumatized. It's inside of his bones, it's in his heart, it's in his system. He can't stop it. He sees the police now. He likely has an emotional response that he may keep quiet, but is ravishing through his heart, nervous because he's traumatized by the police. Let's put up the police station. Uh, the police chief of this jurisdiction, uh, Santobia, his name is Richard Chandler, made a statement on the department's behalf stating there was an error in judgment. Quote, under these circumstances, it was an error in judgment for us to transport the child to the police station since the mother was present at that time as a reasonable alternative. The chief said, adding, stakes like this are a reminder in this profession as to the continual need for training and refreshers on the various topics that we encounter each day. Damn lies, chief, you're lying. You know good and damn well all of your men, if you wanna call them that, they knew that it was improper to arrest a 10 year old. There's no mens rea available. They knew it was improper to do so when the alternative was present to simply tell the mother, listen, just make sure he knows not to urinate in public. You see, the first officer knew the law, just like your other officers. Your first officer had the same training as your other officers. Your first officer said the child can go back to the mother, no issue. It wasn't until the other officers came, likely a supervisor who wanted to play a sick and perverted game to lock up a black 10 year old child to disrupt that mother's life and that child's life. You see, there's some perversion happening here, chief. And you do not have leadership capacity to get to the bottom of it. Sharing thoughts here. You know, they played the same game and it turned deadly about 60 some miles away in Drew, Mississippi. Emmett yep. Till's ghost still haunts all of us. The That's child, right. I don't even want to talk about the public urination. The child did it because the child is a child, age That's 10. Right. The police did what they did because they're racist. Mississippi remains first in racism. It's said that way for a reason. This is despicable. And by the way, mom, I pray for her healing and her sons. We're already there when it comes to your son's interaction with police. Yep, that's right. All right, we will bring you updates as they come. Um, naturally, there should be an investigation. Hopefully, a civil lawsuit is also on the way. All right, let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen,
Welcome to the bullpen. Unethical human experiments conducted on mostly black prisoners at Holmesburg Prison. This prison was known as the Terror Dome. During its heyday, it was a source of extreme violence. It is now inactive. But between the 1950s and the 1970s, it was the site of horrid experimentation conducted by a University of Pennsylvania faculty member. Approximately 300 men were exposed to herpes, fungus, asbestos, LSD, skin blistering chemicals, radioactive isotopes, and many more. It is a damn shame. We actually have two individuals who are adversely impacted by this experimentation on black bodies. Let's bring them to the show. We have Adrian Jones Alston as a reentry advocate, and also her father suffered abuse at that very same prison. We also have Herbert Rice, retired from the Philadelphia Recreation Department after 30 years, and was an inmate, was incarcerated at that prison for two years. He has something to say as well. Thank you both for being on the program. Wish it was under better circumstances. How are you? Hi, hello, Dr. Richie. Thank you for providing us this platform to share our stories. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being here, Mr. Rice. Thank you for being here as well. You're welcome, sir. I want to actually start with you, Mr. Rice. Um, there's a quote that's attributed to you. It says, "Quote: They put some kind of radiation on my back in four places. When my skin." came back, it was like leather. You were a prisoner there for roughly two years. You said the worst experience involved a series of pills. Quote, what was told to me afterward was that it was full of some type of living organism inside of these pills you were taking. Talk about your experience. How did this program work? Okay, um, Mr. Ritchie, um, back in 1967, I came to Holmesburg Prison. I was, I was a young kid, you know, and uh, um, my family didn't have a lot of money. They'd be sending me for commissary and stuff like that. So you had to find your way to uh, um, make it in jail. So I ran into some friends of mine that got me transferred over to H Block, is where they had all the tests. And on that block, the horror of living started for me. Uh, and like you said, the uh, it was a radiation study. It put circles on your back, and the and the radiation would take your um, skin down to the white meat, and, and then they would put some kind of salves on it to bring it back. Um, when they brought the, brought it back to my the color of my original skin, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep on my back, and it went on for about maybe six or seven months. I never got comfortable with it. Um, and when you talk about the uh, metabolic study, that was a study where they gave you pills uh, with foreign organisms in it, and you was they took me off an H block and took me to the hospital block along with other inmates, 
and you was observed for about three or four days to see what kind of changes you would go through. The changes for me didn't happen at Holmesburg Prison. It happened after I got out. Uh, the other testers that I took was on my forearm. They would put some kind of, uh, they would take a needle and shoot some kind of stuff under my skin that made it blister. And once it blistered, they would take these shears and cut that skin off and put it in jars and would put salve on your arm to kind of make you comfortable. Uh, one of the other tests that I took was uh, um, uh, when they made four incisions on the left side of my body, on my ribs, and they sewed me up with different materials, like red material, blue material, gray material. And that material was for uh, uh, the hospitals. Like in the, in the operating room where you've seen all white, well, they were using other colors and they wanted to see if you would get, if, if, if a person would get infected from these colors on, this, on the uh, operating room. So they used us for that. So I never got infected. Uh, no, nothing went wrong, no more than the cuts, the four cuts on the side. And another test that I took was a milkshake study where you didn't get no food, they just gave you a waffle uh, a waffle, and a milkshake for about 30 days. They wanted to see if they could contain your weight. Um, uh, when I went away, as a result of the, um, the Holmesburg ride, they transferred me to another prison. And that's when I started to feel effects, which I didn't know at the time, uh, from all them tests that I took, especially that are uh, the metabolic tests, I started to have nightmares. Um, it got so bad that within that time period, between 1970 and 71, all the way up until about 205, I went to three different mental institutions. And what they told me, I was bipolar. What I knew was more than that bothering me. Uh, as a result of meeting Miss Jones, um, I was having nightmares for over 35, 40 years, and I didn't know where it was coming from. Um, uh, it changed my whole personality. I turned on my family. I turned on my kids. I turned on my wife, which I lost. You know, and thank God I got them back. But I paid a price. Uh, it was like living in a horror story. Uh to regurgitate this is very painful for me. So please excuse me. So uh, no apology necessary. Uh, I didn't know at the time what this stuff was. I almost made the mistake of taking an LSD test study. What turned me around from that is that when I went to apply for it, it had a note on the door, please wait out to lunch. So I stood there and waited for this person to come back. But in the process of doing that, this guy came up on me, and I was only 23 years old. And he said, young buck, don't take this test. And when I looked him in the face, his eyes was going left to right, left to right, right and it scared me half to death. And I, uh, I didn't take it. But uh, from all over the years, I have had all, I have reoccurrences, nightmares with this stuff. I never went out to get mental help. But as a result of that, I, I got help for my drug and alcohol. The drugs and alcohol kept me out of the horror of what I went through. Mm. It was like it was more comfortable being high 
than being in reality. Wow. Uh, Sir, yes. the, the courage that you have to tell this uh, story um, is commendable. Um, I want to go to the, the advocate for a moment, then Mr. Rice, I'm going to come back to you. Sure. I have a follow-up question. Sure. Um, Ms. Uh, Adrian Jones uh, Alston, your father was part of this experimentation and your account of an incident where you saw something on his back that made you literally run away from your own dad because you thought he was transforming into a monster. Can you give us some insight into that? And what have you learned being an advocate since then? Yes, I can recall that event, that particular day that you're talking about. I was about five or six years old when my father returned home from Holmesburg. My father was our breadwinner, you know, and he went away. And when he came back, I was so excited to see him. But anyway, I found myself walking into the bedroom this particular day, and he had his shirt off. For some odd reason, I never saw his, I didn't see his shirt off. But anyway, I walk in and he had his shirt off and his back was turned to me. And what I saw looked like a outbreak of the picture that they show us now, the, um, what monkey pox would look like. Anyway, it was all, it was everywhere and it was oozy. And I looked at it and it scared me because, you know, I'm a child with an animated mind and I thought he was turning into a monster because that's how hideous it was. Picture a five or six year old looking at something like that on the body of their, of one of their parents. I looked at his back, I froze. I turned around and I ran out the room. I ran past my mother and I was like, oh, you know, I was crying. You know, I was upset and I, I didn't want to look at him. You know, I ran for my father, so I was afraid of him for a while because, you know, I didn't know what was going on. That was just strange to me to see all those sores. And uh, it was just a horrible uh, situation. But when my father passed away about five years ago, I was contacted by a professor from the University of Penn who was doing some a write up on Dr. Albert Kligman. And he said, every time I pull up Dr. Kligman on the internet, your father comes up with him. And so, and uh, he said, so I found you, you know, through social media, because I set up a memorial page for my father on Facebook in memory of Leotis Jones. So he reached out to me through Messenger and I responded. He said, so I would like to talk to you about this. But by that professor uh, contacting me, I knew that it was something you know, important. I always knew my father was doing advocate work, but I never knew the, uh, the the death of it. You know, so I started talking to him and I started doing more research and, and I started and then I reached out to Alan Hornblum who wrote the book, Eggers of Skin. He wrote the book about the experiments. I reached out to him through social media and we connected and I started finding out more and I just started digging. And then I realized that this was bigger than what I thought. Uh, so I start talking to other people. I organized a march, and then I organized another event the following year at the Holmesburg Prison Wall to uh, commemorate what happened there. And after that, uh, survivors started reaching out to me, and um, I met Mr. Herb. I met, it's, a, it's a few more of them. It's the last surviving woman of the experiments. 
Um, she's so messed up mentally that she wants to talk. Another day she's yelling at me because she's it, it, it takes her into a mode where I won't even reach out to her because I don't even want to take her through that. Right. You know, I teared up listening to Mr. Rice because I saw my father. You know, my mm-hmm. father never talked about the experiments because my father was a proud man and, I, and I'm sure he was embarrassed. You know, Leotis Jones was a strong man and nobody played him. And at that point, I know he was embarrassed about what he allowed himself to go through. But uh, the damage with my family, like Mr. Herb described, uh, my father became violent. It uh, ended the marriage. I saw a lot of things a child should not see. I was scarred for life. I kind of checked out on life. Uh, When I became old enough to run away from home after they separated, I did that. My life went into a downward spiral. The nightmares that he, I had different nightmares. I remember the abuse, the separation. You know, children don't understand that, but that tore my life apart. You know, so my life went through a downward spiral well into my adulthood. I experienced incarceration, you know, so I, getting back getting back to Mr. Herb and the survivors, I realized that this is something that has to be done. So I made myself a voice for the voiceless. Some of them are there that some survivors won't even talk about it because they're still embarrassed. Some of them still haven't talked to their families about what they allowed themselves to go through the Holmesburg. So listen to Mr. Rice, he said he held that in for 50 years until he met me and he started talking about it. His healing just started. That's why it's important to do stories like this. And that's why it's important to have opportunities to engage thoughtfully, mm-hmm. authentically, truthfully about what has occurred. I'm going to ask you a question as an advocate. How many people do you think were involved in this experiment? Oh, it's well into the thousands. I believe so because not only did Dr. Clinton experiment on the uh, Holmesburg prison uh, men and men, he went to the detention center where it was men and women. And it was another prison, it was three prisons that he uh, frequented in Philadelphia. He also went to the uh, children's group home that was in New Jersey and he experimented on mentally challenged children. Those children were in the ice and they were institutionalized, of course, away from the public eye because these are the places that this man went and took advantage of the vulnerable. He also went to the nursing homes where human beings were on their deathbed and had to be subject to his unethical thoughts. You know what? I, I never. I can't imagine wanting to just have peace until I meet my maker and here he come with needles and scrapers messing with my fragile body. You know, a lot of some people say, well, those inmates, they did crimes and maybe they should have did that. Okay, well, let's talk about the children. You know, let's everybody. Talk about those children and those senior citizens. Everybody deserves um, to be treated with um, yes. basic humanity. And th- this is obviously criminal. Now, under what authority? Was he able to strike these MOUs with the warden or these agreements with the facility director? And what authority did he walk into these establishments with? Well, he, of course, permissions were given. The city gave permission. The, uh, the, the I'm sure the uh, jail officials gave permissions. You know, he didn't just walk in there and do what he wanted to do. People, he had to get permission to do it. So, uh, who was he funded by? Somebody's paying for this. Who was paying? He was funded by his um, the same place that gave that uh, gave him his doctorates. He worked for University of Penn. 
He -hmm. was paid by over 30 something, and I'm sure the number is bigger than that. Yeah, over 30 something pharmaceutical companies paid him to do experiments to try out their different chemicals on these people to see how they worked. Have they responded officially to their connection to this mad scientist who engaged in criminal actions against human bodies? Have they responded? Have those pharmaceutical companies, has the university responded? The uh, the university gave an apology uh, for, for the part they played in it. But other than that, not one pharmaceutical company said anything. All right, let me go back to Mr. Rice. Uh, Mr. Rice, once again, I appreciate your courage I'm coming on the Thanks. show today, okay? Thanks. Um, you now meet an advocate, you get more answers. Uh, because of the opportunity to engage and understand what actually happened and how this has adversely impacted your life. Naturally, there are other people um, who were with you being experimented on at that time. Do you currently have contact with any of them? And if so, do they have similar experiences like nightmares uh, from that experimentation? Uh, The men that was with me, that was close to, they're all dead. Wow. They all died from different, like one guy killed himself, a guy hung himself, you know, uh, and um, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, um, there was a guy that was in this book from Alan uh, Hornblum. His name was Snooky Vaughn. And uh, um, as I know it, on H-Block, I seen a major. He he didn't dress in military clothes. He dressed in regular street clothes, but he was a major from the United States Army. He never involved himself with none of the inmates. When we seen him coming, we used to call him Doctor Death. Um, I don't know his name, but I but but guards had told me he was a major in the United States Army, and um, and I seen other individuals come in and out of that place, and we was used, man, but. All I could think about was the money. You know what I mean? Because I needed commissary. I needed to buy soap. I needed to buy cigarettes. I needed to buy this. You know, because if you didn't have some type of way of making money in jail, you would find yourself in a homosexual situation. Holmesburg was no joke during that time. Because in 1963, when I was 18 years old, they sent me to Holmesburg. And I seen guys with these cups on their head. You know, I seen all these cups on their head. And I, I said, man, what, what is, what are them guys got cups on their head? And come to find out, they was injecting stuff into people's brain. You know, this wow. is something that I witnessed. This let is me, something that I witnessed, and I put my life on the line for it. Let me ask you this, and I still suffer mentally. You know, uh, about two weeks ago, I called Adrian, and I couldn't talk to her. And I stayed like that for about two or three days. Every now and then, it comes up, and I shut down. You know, and you I just stay can't away physically. You you can't utter the words. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. Let let me let me back up to something you just you said uh, about um, the military official. Do you think that this was some kind of operation that also included the federal government as well, and that may have been the catalyst to giving this mad scientist such access to various services. Most definitely, the LSG test was ran by the United States Army and everybody knew it. That's right. 
All right, what has been the legal advocacy? And Mr. Rice, I wanna ask you first, in case there is a legal route here to hold individuals accountable criminally or civilly. Are you aware of an effort? Is there a class action taking place now? Wrongful death lawsuits in the works. What's happening with the cases? If well, I can't answer that, but only um, Ms. Jones can. Because I got involved in this because I wanted to expose something that I've been holding back for 50 years and it's been killing me. Yeah. You know, and far as all reparations and stuff like that, that's Ms. Mrs. Jones' field. Okay. All I want to do is tell the truth and expose what happened to me and others and their families. Ms. Jones? Yes. Um, Right now, there's no legal, <clears throat> we have no one to represent us because we have talked to, I have talked to a few lawyers and the problem is the statute of limitations. And then there's also the judge that threw the case out. Well, that's the same thing, but I don't know what it is. No one has no one has stepped up to represent, you know, okay. these guys and, and, and the rest of us, you know, the family members, the descendants. So uh, we're still looking and as far as reparations, we're exploring our options right now. I'm going to do something um, right after the show today. Um, I'm gonna send this segment to United States Senator John Ossoff, um, who sits, um, sits on a committee that investigates prisons. He's been very effective. Uh, in many of these investigations, I'm going to also utilize whatever leverage, whatever, um, whatever I can add to this, mm-hmm. to get someone to advocate in the justice system for you. The statute of limitation dynamic is interesting because typically a jurisdiction will say, "Well, the statute of limitation doesn't really start until you discover." that there has been a crime committed against you. So if your discovery is recent as far as criminal conduct being committed against you, that should start the statute of limitation countdown. But I will make sure that an attorney has this today. Before we part, Mr. Rice, are there any words you would like to offer those who will see this, want to become advocates with you, support you? Well, guys like myself that are still living, we want to get some kind of mental help. You know, I reached out to get mental help and uh, I got scared because of, I thought they were gonna put me back yeah. in the mental places, you know? And they wanted to give me all kind of different stuff that made me feel weird. Even today, like I told uh, uh, Ms. Jones, I just want some help. Yeah. That's all I want. I don't know nothing about the money and stuff like that, but I want the families that suffered as a result of what happened to us. Because I did a lot of stuff to my family. Because one of my daughters told me I was a a monster. That's what she called me, a monster. And I guess that's what it was at the time. And and I'm not all that healthy, but um, I get along, you know. I don't be around a lot of people and stuff, you know, more or less to my family because they help me a lot. But the uh, the tragedy that happened to people like myself, you know, we just want help. That's all. I don't know about nothing else, but I would like to have help. 
Um, can I? Yes. Okay. Uh, what I did was um, I realized the importance of this particular uh, issue. So I started up a, a 501c3 nonprofit called Jones Foundation for Returning Citizens. And that's the home of the um, Holmesburg Prison Survivors Network. That's what we call it. So we doing a lot of work from there. We set up uh, we setting up programs, trying to get ready to apply for funding. We have uh, different people on our board. You know, people are getting at we getting getting it together. We have a website set up, so you, we can be reached through our website, Jones Foundation for Returning Citizens Inc. That's our. Um, I'm sorry, JonesFound09.com is our website address, so we can be reached from that. Um, I, I I think that you have uh, email address. Um, I have contact information, but the website is our primary way of being reached. Should anyone become interested in supporting us, you know, helping us get from point A to point B, because apparently there's an elephant in the room. That's right. <laughs> you know That's what right. I'm saying? <laughs> so, but this I, has to be done. It has to be done. Um, the Henrietta Lacks Foundation support us. They're, they paid my college tuition last year, and they also paid off my uh, student loans. Um, another uh, descendant of the survivors uh, got college tuition through the Henrietta Lacks Foundation. So they're also being supportive. And as a matter of fact, we're going to be at Howard University in November. I'll send you the information. We'll be speaking We'll be speaking in a, at a conference, you know, talking about our stories. It'll be myself representing the Holmesburg Prison Survivors, and it'll be some survivors there. The Henrietta Lacks family, we're waiting for a confirmation. The Tuskegee Syphilis descendants will be there. So uh, I'll send you guys the information so you'll have it in case someone asks us about that. I appreciate the courage, I appreciate the advocacy. Um, if there's an update, we definitely want you to come back uh, as it relates to the legal issues and the um, holding people accountable. Um, mm -hmm. I will do all I can. I, I was touched by this story from day one. Uh, it was unbelievable, but believable uh, that this happened once again to those who are historically marginalized in our society. Uh, to Mr. Rice, to Ms. Jones, thank you both. We would definitely welcome. have you back very thank soon, you. but we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. I'm going to ask everybody do all you can. Do y'all all you can to make sure you advocate for people <clears throat> who have been harmed in such a way. All right. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always in dispute.